All right, so after the Lord went to the pool of Bethesda and healed the man who had been crippled for 38 years, you remember from last week, the religious leaders became very, very angry. You see, Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath day, which the religious leaders considered a violation of the fourth commandment, which had to do with the Jews not working on Sabbath. All right, so sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. God gave the Sabbath day to Israel. You don't work on the Sabbath if you're a Jew. Um, And so instead of rejoicing, right, with a man who had been suffering for 38 years and now he's been set free, now he can walk, he can run, he can dance. Instead of rejoicing with him, The religious leaders focused on their man-made rules. You remember also that they took the fourth commandment and they heaped up a lot of man-made rules upon it. And so instead of rejoicing with this guy, the religious leaders focused on their man-made rules about what you could or could not do on the Sabbath day. And the healed man carrying his bedroll and Jesus healing people on the Sabbath, well, that was a no-no in the religious leader's book of rules. All of this led to a fascinating discourse between Jesus and these men, during which Jesus uh, made some magnificent, he made some significant claims about himself that literally shocked these guys to the core of their being. The claim that probably shocked them the most can be found in chapter five, verses 25 and 26. All right, so look at verse 25. Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the, please shout it out, Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. These religious leaders, they knew that when Jesus referred to the Son of God, he was referring to himself. And so we saw last week that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, claimed to be equal with the Father. He claimed to have life in himself and to be able to give life to the dead. He claimed that one day he will judge all mankind. Therefore, we should, title the message last week, honor the Son. We also came to the conclusion last week with the help of C.S. Lewis that for Jesus Christ to make such claims about himself, either he had to be a liar or off his rocker, a lunatic, or he was absolutely Lord of all. And so the two big questions regarding all this, here they are. Number one, who do you say Jesus is? And then number two, are you honoring the Son? And so this discourse between the Lord and the religious leaders is gonna continue on all the way through chapter five. And as we finish up the chapter today, here's what the Lord's gonna do. If you're listening, say amen here. The Lord is going to call on various witnesses who are gonna verify the claims that he made about himself. 
from verses 32 all the way to verse 47. We're gonna look at five testimonies of truth. Um, but first, you know, we wanna go verse by verse. And so before we deal with verse 32 through verse 30, 47, we gotta deal with verses 30 and 31. All right, so right now, if you're looking at John 5, verse 30, can you say amen? amen? Here we go. Jesus, speaking to the religious leaders, says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will. That right there, that sentence right there will preach. Because ladies and gentlemen, here's what a lot of people try to do. They try to use Jesus to help them fulfill their self-centered dreams. It's not about that. It's about finding out what God wants you to do and submitting to his will. And like Jesus, following Jesus' example, following the Father's will for our lives. He says, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so as you know, John opened up his gospel with these amazing words. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word, help me out, was, was God. The Word, the Logos, the eternal Son of God, second person of the Trinity. He was there in the beginning, before the beginning, why he's eternal. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. You go down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's called the incarnation. Now, one of the interesting aspects of the incarnation is that when the eternal Son added a human nature to his divine nature, as a human being, he had to learn to obey. Now let me say that again because I think I just surprised some of you. And so one of the beautiful aspects of the incarnation is that when the eternal Son of God added a human nature to his divine nature as a human being, he had to learn to obey. Look at what John Phillips uh, said. He said that God obeys no one. He is preexistent and self-existent. He is omniscient and omnipotent. But when the Son of God became the Son of Man, that's the incarnation right there, by the way. When the Son of God became the Son of Man, he learned to do what God had never done. <laughs> he learned obedience. And I'll quote Hebrews 5.8 here in a little while. And so as a man... Jesus learned to obey his earthly mother and stepfather. As a man, Jesus learned to obey his heavenly father. Yeah, it's true. He learned as a human being uh, to obey his earthly mother and stepfather. And so after Joseph and Mary lost the 12-year-old Jesus, you guys remember this story? And they're frantically looking all over. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? They look for three days. I mean, that'll freak you out. And they finally found him. Does anybody remember where they found 12-year-old Jesus? In the temple. And he's talking to the, 
the teachers, and everybody's astounded at what's coming out of the mouth of this 12-year-old. And Mary runs up to him and says, quote, son, why have you treated us so? We've been so distressed searching for you. And Jesus replied, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I must be in my father's house? And then Luke, the historian, wrote this. And he, 12-year-old Jesus, went down with them and came to Nazareth and was, please say the next three words. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Yes, you hear me say it all the time. Jesus was and is fully God. But a lot of times what we do is we de-emphasize the fact that he was fully man as well. That he became through the incarnation a real human being who in every aspect was tempted as we are yet without sin. That's what it says in Hebrews 4.15. Okay, so what does that mean? That means that Jesus perfectly submitted to his earthly mother and stepdad. And he perfectly submitted to his heavenly father. One of the subjects I love the most is Christology. I just love learning the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's absolutely amazing to me that the second person of the Trinity, as Paul wrote, who though he was in the form of God, that word form means nature, Though he was in the nature of God. In other words, Jesus is God, okay? So, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied. Can, can, can you guys say the word emptied there? In the Greek, it's kanao. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And so at the incarnation, Jesus emptied himself. Now here's what you need to know. It's called the, the teaching of the kenosis, kanao, emptied, kenosis. Here's what you need to know. That when the Son of God became the Son of Man at the incarnation, he did not cease to be God. Please hear that. We're talking about the true Jesus, the biblical Jesus. There's so many false Jesuses out there being taught by false teachers that cannot save anybody. So listen, at the incarnation, when the Son of God became the Son of Man, he did not cease to be God. He did not empty himself of his divinity. He did not, you gotta hear this because some of the guys on TV are teaching this wrong. He did not empty himself of his divine attributes. No way. You say, well, what did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of his divine privileges. How? By taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Paul then wrote, and being found in what form? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Somebody says, well, why did he die on a cross? To pay for your sins? Because the wages of sin is, and he was your substitute, and he loves you, and didn't want you to die and go to hell, and pay for your sins forever? 
And so his love sent him willingly to the cross where he was your substitute and he received the wrath of God so we wouldn't have to. He paid, he satisfied the justice of God and the love of God all right there on the cross. He died for us in our place and three days later he marched out of the tomb. You know what it's called? It's called the gospel. And so regarding Christ's suffering and death, Hebrews says this, now we'll quote Hebrews 5.8. Although he was the son, he, go ahead and say the next two words. From what he suffered. He learned. He didn't learn as God, God's omniscient. He learned as a man, and as a man, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember this? As he's on his knees, sweating great drops of blood. Father, if it's possible, let this cup be passed away from me. Here it is. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. How many of you guys are glad that the son submitted to, obeyed the father, and he went to the cross and he drank the cup? It's so awesome, so amazing what Jesus has done for us. And so yes, he said at the end of verse 30 to the religious leaders, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now in verse 31, when Jesus said, I'll read it again, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true, he was not saying that he's a false teacher. No, what Jesus was saying, he was just stating the obvious, that he knew he would need other witnesses to verify his claims that he made about himself in order for those claims to be accepted by the religious leaders as valid. All right, and so for the rest of our time together, for the rest of the chapter, the Lord Jesus is going to appeal to five witnesses. He is going uh, to receive five testimonies of truth um, and these witnesses are gonna validate, verify the claims that he made about himself. All right, so look at verse 33. Verse 33, he said, you sent to John, that's John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be, what's the word at the end of verse 34? Saved. Please everybody say saved. saved. That's a great word. That's a biblical word. That word's in the gospels. That word is in Acts. That word's in the epistles. That word is in Revelation. It's an awesome word. It's a biblical word. We should use the word. Now, who is he talking to? He's talking to the religious leaders. What usually happens when you tell a religious person they need to get saved? You know, right? And so things are heating up in this discourse. But ladies and gentlemen, it's a biblical word and it's true. And here's the thing. Religion does not save. Jesus saves. Okay, and so if you know you're saved, for sure, on the count of three, say, I am saved. One, two, three. I am saved. It's great to say that. 
It's biblical. You say, but my friends will look at me like I'm weird. Who cares? And so, he says in verse 35, speaking of John the Baptist, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. All right, the first witness Jesus calls to the stand is the witness, his name is John the Baptist. So you guys know this. John the Baptist came on the scene. God sent John the Baptist to be a forerunner for the Messiah, and through his preaching, what did he do? So the father sends John the Baptist to be a forerunner for his son, the Messiah, and through the preaching of John the Baptist, what did he do? What he did is that he prepared the Jewish people for their coming Messiah. And so John the Baptist's ministry was abundantly blessed by God. We're talking thousands and thousands of Jews are coming out of Jerusalem and Judea, and they're going out in the wilderness to hear this guy preach. And you remember um, what, one of the central themes of his message was repent. By the way, that's another good biblical word. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you can't have a kingdom unless you have a king. And one day, here comes the king. Jesus appeared. And I want you to see what John said about him. It says, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a great testimony of truth. Not only that. John also said this, John the Baptist, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. All right, so the father sends John the Baptist. John the Baptist has no idea who the Messiah is, so the Father tells John the Baptist, the one who you see the Holy Spirit descend and remain upon, that's the Messiah. That's the one who baptized with the Holy Spirit, and I love the last two lines. John the Baptist says, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the, please shout it out, Son of God. What a great testimony of truth. And so regarding John the Baptist, Jesus said in verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice, notice this, for a while in his light. Now, how sad is that? Why in the world did so many Jews rejoice only for a while in the light of John the Baptist's message? Well, there's, there's different reasons uh, we only have so much time. Let me give you one of the reasons. One of the reasons was because um, their expectation of who the Messiah would be was that the Messiah would come and the Messiah would be a great military leader. They wanted a conquering Christ. They wanted a conquering Christ who would gather an army. Come on, boys, right? And go and attack Rome and go and defeat the Romans. But when they realized that Jesus didn't fit their mold of what the Messiah should be like, what happened? They lost their enthusiasm for John the Baptist's message because John the Baptist was pointing to Jesus. In other words, him, he's the Messiah. The one who says, blessed are the peacemakers, 
The one who says, love your enemies? The one who says, pray for those who persecute you? Um, no thank you. So that's why they only rejoiced for a while in the light of John's message. Look at verse 36. Jesus continues. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the, please shout out the word, works. works. That's signs and miracles, ladies and gentlemen. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me, bear witness about me. We're talking about testimonies of truth. Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. All right, the second witness Jesus called to the stand were his signs and miracles. And so I hope you see the flow. I hope you see what's going on here. If Jesus makes all these magnificent claims about himself, but then does nothing to back up his claims, so many people would regard his words as the words, the rantings, the ravings of a deluded fool. But guess what? Jesus backed up his, his words, his claims about who he was with authentic signs and miracles. I'm not talking about some of the fake stuff that you see on TV. I'm talking about the real deal. I'm talking about real signs and real miracles. And as we've already seen, John, the author of the gospel, he lists some of those signs and miracles. Now, of course, John didn't list all of the signs and miracles that Jesus did, but he did tell us about eight of them. We've been putting this on the screen a lot because this is the flow. This is where we're going as we go through the Gospel of John. And so these are the signs, these are the wonders that substantiate, verify, validate, back up the claims of, of Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, he turned water into wine. He healed the official's son. He healed the crippled man. I can't wait to come next week and teach you the exciting story of how he fed 5,000 people by miraculously multiplying five loaves of bread and two fish. Invite your friends next week. He walked on water. He healed the man born blind. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And of course, the miraculous catch of fish. And so here's what you need to know. If you're listening, say amen here. Nobody's ever done anything close to that. You say, but Elijah and Elisha, they did miracles in the Old Testament. Yes, they did in the power of God. But Elijah didn't claim to be the son of God. <laughs> Elisha didn't claim to be the son of God. Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be the son of God. That's a pretty big claim, would you agree? And then he did all of that to back up his claim. And so one day, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, it's enough for us. And Jesus replied, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And here it is, sports fans. 
or else believe on account of the what? Works, signs and miracles, themselves. Jesus Christ performed so many signs and miracles in front of so many people, listen, to reject his claim that he is the son of God, that's not a head problem, that's a heart problem. It's a heart problem. And my heart breaks for people who have the wall up and are resisting the Holy Spirit drawing and wooing you to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 32. We're gonna go back up to verse 32. Jesus said, there is another who bears witness about me and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now the answer to who is Jesus talking about in verse 32 can be found in verse 37. So jump down to verse 37. And the, please say the word. The father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you, religious leaders, do not have his word abiding in you. I mean, it's getting tense right now. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one in whom he has sent. And so the third witness Jesus calls to the stand is the Father. And so at the beginning of his public ministry, you remember this, Jesus goes down to the Jordan River to see John the Baptist. And he indicates to John that he wants to be baptized. At first, John's resistant, right? You come to me to be baptized? I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. And you remember after that, the heavens open and the Spirit of God, like a dove, comes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist saw that. Now you remember from John chapter one, verses 33 and 34, the Father had told John the Baptist because he didn't know who the Messiah was. The one on whom you see the Holy Spirit descend and remain, that's the Messiah. John witnesses this. And then John proclaims testimony of truth. He's the son of God. And then the story gets even more exciting because after the spirit came upon Jesus, Matthew tells us, behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Woo, right? Whose voice is that? What's his name? The Father. The Father. And so what better testimony can anybody ever receive than the testimony of the Father in heaven? But there's a problem, and the problem is in verse 38. Jesus says to these guys, you do not have his, the Father's, word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And so, What's going on here is that these religious leaders 
are being rebuked by the Lord Jesus Christ for not having the word in their hearts. Now, of course, these guys would argue back. Are you crazy? Of course we have his word abiding in our hearts. We study the scriptures every single day. And yet Jesus said what he said. I'm gonna read it again. I'm gonna read it very slow because I want you to understand what's going on here. Jesus says to these guys, you do not have his word abiding in you. Why? For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. What does that mean? That means an unbeliever can read the Bible academically and it will only be an academic exercise in futility if they don't allow the Bible to point them to Jesus Christ. Now that was a mouthful, I wanna say that again. I want, I want you to hear this. An unbeliever can read this book academically, but it'll only be an, an academic exercise in futility if they reject the one that this book points to. And so that leads us perfectly now into verse 39. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. That is one of the most significant claims in the word of God right there, end of verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me, Jesus Christ. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The fourth witness that Jesus called to the stand were the scriptures. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus admitted that these religious leaders studied the scriptures. Man, he admitted, he knew that they were diligent students of the Bible, but there was a problem. And one of the guys I read during the week to help me prepare for these message, messages, his name is D.A. Carson. I love the way he articulated this problem here. He said that Jesus points out that their primary motivation in such diligent study was the hope of final acceptance by God. Okay, so why does Carson come to that conclusion? Because Jesus said to the religious leaders, quote, you think by them, the scriptures, you possess eternal life. And then by contrast, Jesus insists that there is nothing life-giving about studying the scriptures if one fails to discern their true content and purpose. Ladies and gentlemen, what is the true purpose of this book, Old and New Testament? The true purpose of this book is to point people to Jesus Christ. Amen. Who's the central theme of the word of God? Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus said in verse 39. And by the way, they didn't have a New Testament by this time where we are in the Bible in John chapter five. All they had was the Old Testament. And yet, what did he say about the Old Testament in verse 39? He said that it is, it is the scriptures that bear witness about me. And so if you're new to the Bible, please hear this. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies about the coming Christ. Prophecies about his birth. Prophecies about his birthplace. 
Prophecies about his life. Prophecies about his ministry. Prophecies about his miracles. Prophecies about his suffering. Prophecies about his death. Prophecies about his resurrection. Prophecies about his divine nature are all there in the Old Testament. Ladies and gentlemen, hear me. Read the Old Testament. Don't just read the New. You gotta go back, you gotta read the Old so that the New makes more sense to you. The whole thing, Genesis to Revelation, is the breathed out Word of God. Be students of the Word. That's what Jesus wants us to do. And so, one of my favorite stories in the Bible occurred on the Sunday after Jesus was crucified. And so Jesus Christ, crucified on Friday, buried. He's in the tomb on Saturday. Sunday morning, he rises from the dead. Later on that same day, two very discouraged, depressed disciples are walking from Jerusalem to a little town called Emmaus. And as they're walking, they're talking. And they're talking about all the tragic things that had just recently happened uh, regarding Jesus' suffering and death. They're bummed out. Man, they are so sad. And also, earlier that same day, earlier that same Sunday, certain women told them a story which they, quite frankly, found unbelievable. These women actually told them that they had been to the tomb early that morning, Jesus' tomb, and that the tomb was empty, but they had a vision of angels who told these women that he, Jesus, had risen from the dead. And these two disciples, their attitude, whatever. But they should have listened to the women because now they're bummed out. Now they're discouraged. And they're walking along. And you guys remember the story? All of a sudden, everybody look at me. A stranger comes up walking and talking with them. And as they're walking and talking, um, the stranger looks at them and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And one of them named Cleopas said, you haven't been around? You haven't heard the news? Now, obviously, I'm paraphrasing here, so don't send me emails, okay? <laughs> Just telling you the story. Where have you been? You don't know what's been going on? And Jesus is like, what's been going on? He said, and now this is Cleopas and the other guy both are, are, are saying this to Jesus as they're walking and talking. But again, he's in disguise. They think he's just a stranger. They don't know who he is. And they say, the things concerning um, Jesus, a prophet mighty before God and all the people in word and deed, our religious leaders condemned him to death and crucified him. But, but listen to this. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was gonna deliver us from Rome, redeem us, redeem Israel. If you're listening, please say amen here. Amen. These two guys expected a conquering king who would save them from Rome, but what they got was a suffering servant who saved them from their sins. Read Isaiah 53, 700 years before Christ. The entire chapter is all about, in detail, the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, written 700 years before he ever walked the earth. That little tidbit of information right there tells you this. Christianity is true, all other religions are false. Amen. Period. You say, that's not politically correct. I don't care about being politically correct, I care about being biblically correct. 
You cannot make this stuff up. My challenge to you is go back home, read Isaiah chapter, the end of 52 and 53, and ask yourself, who in the world is this talking about? It's very evident the whole thing is about Jesus' suffering, death, resurrection, 700 years before it happened. This book is not just written by men. Holy men of God were moved along by the Holy Spirit. It's breathed out by God. Where am I in my notes? Yes, then the stranger, the risen Christ, said this to these two guys. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's Old Testament prophets. Was it not necessary that the Christ should, please shout out the word. Isaiah 53. Suffer these things and enter into his glory, and beginning with Moses, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the, what? The things concerning himself. The Lord had so much to say from the scriptures. This Bible study, it's a Bible study that's going on. And by the way, he doesn't have a sack filled with scrolls. Let me pull out the scroll of Moses, the scroll of Isaiah. The Lord Jesus knew the word of God. And it's a Bible study as he and these two men are walking to the little village called Emmaus. And in that Bible study, no doubt he's teaching from the law of Moses, specifically the sacrificial system and how Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God whose sacrifice provided the all-sufficient substitutionary atonement for us, for our sins, to forgive our sins. That's what he's talking about as he's walking down the road. No doubt this teaching include, included uh, teachings from the prophets and how Jesus Christ fulfilled so many Old Testament prophecies. Psalm 22, Psalm 1610, Isaiah 53, Daniel chapter nine, Isaiah chapter nine. We can go on and on and on. This is what the Bible study is all about. It must have been absolutely amazing. And as this stranger, last two sentences, what did he do? He interpreted to them in all the, what? Scriptures, the things concerning himself. You know why that excites me? Because ladies and gentlemen, Calvary Chapel, Port St. Lucie, this is who we are. We're all about the scriptures. And Jesus taught the scriptures. This is what we gotta do. Spread the word, tell people. Teach the Bible. Jesus told Pastor Peter, feed my sheep. Paul told Pastor Timothy, preach the word. Jesus has given a Bible study on the road to Emmaus. What are we doing? This is God's word. I got 40 or 45 minutes, sometimes it's a little longer, I know, with you guys. Of course I'm gonna teach you the Bible. Of course I'm gonna teach God's word. And so later on, you guys can read the story later. Their eyes are open, they recognize this is Jesus. But what did they learn that day from the Bible? If you're listening to this, say amen here. Amen. They learned that before the Christ would wear a crown, he had to hang on a cross. And I tell you, man, that gets me right here because I'm so glad Jesus loves us enough to die for us. He says to them in verse 41, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. 
Things are getting really hot now, really tense. Here's what's so sad, everybody look at me real quick. These guys had so much knowledge in their heads, but they didn't have the love of God in their hearts. He goes on to say in verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Who's he talking about? He's talking about future false messiahs. Read up on Josephus, the first century Jewish historian. He'll tell you the story that during the first century, after the time of Jesus, into the early part of the second century, various Jews accepted various false messiahs. Hey, um, how can you believe? He says in verse 40, um, 43, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And that's exactly historically what they did. Various Jews accepted various false messiahs. Now, many people believe the most notorious false messiah is gonna be the one who's gonna come in the future. He's gonna be a political leader. He's gonna come on the scene. He's gonna sign a strong covenant with many in Israel. Most likely a peace treaty, a Middle East peace treaty. His name in the Bible is the Antichrist. And that signing of that peace treaty is gonna kick off what's known as, in Daniel 9, the 70th week of Daniel. Not a week of days, week of years. This is where we get the seven-year tribulation. And so, ladies and gentlemen, we're not in the tribulation right now. But in the future, a political leader will sign a strong covenant with many in Israel. Again, most likely a Middle East peace treaty. That's gonna kick off the seven-year tribulation. But here's the problem. Halfway through, he's gonna break his covenant with Israel. He's gonna show his true colors. Now, obviously, this is one of my favorite topics in all the world. I don't have time. So here's my thing. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, go to gotquestions.org. How many of you guys have ever heard me uh, endorse God questions. Say amen, right? Okay, go to GodQuestions.org and type in this. Type in, what is the tribulation? And it'll, it'll tell you all about it, but I gotta finish this sermon. All right, so look at, verse, look at verse 44. How can you believe, Jesus says to religious leaders, when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And so these guys are seeking, instead of seeking honor from God, they're seeking honor from each other, they're seeking their own honor because of their pride, they love to be lauded. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Now you expect that from little kids, right? But grown men? And their pride blinded them to the truth. Look at verse 45, last three verses. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. And that's the straw that breaks the camel's back because these guys are experts on Moses and they're really mad now. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. I have no doubt that one of these religious leaders just broke out laughing. Like, 
what? Verse 47, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so the fifth and last witness that Jesus calls to the stand is Moses. Now please stay with me all the way to the end here, okay? But Moses wrote the first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's called the Pentateuch. The word Pentateuch means five books. Now of course, Moses didn't write the last chapter in Deuteronomy because that chapter describes his death and burial and it's kind of hard to write about yourself when you're dead, okay? <laughs> so we think that Joshua wrote the last chapter. But nonetheless, Moses writes the first five books of the Bible. Jesus says, Moses wrote about me. And I, I wanna show you just one of those passages from the Pentateuch. God said these words to Moses. He said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. And so next week when I teach you chapter six and the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and fish to feed the 5,000 men, not including women and children, did you know that those people who received that lunch that day, they were stunned and the stunned people said this, this pointing at Jesus is indeed the, what's the word? prophet who is to come into the world. What are they doing? They're referring to Deuteronomy 18 passage that we just had up on the screen a little while ago that many Jews in that day believed was a messianic prophecy. We know for sure that it is absolutely a prophecy about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Moses did write about Jesus. And did you know that's about 14, 1500 years before Christ. Around 700 years before Christ, another Israelite wrote about the coming Christ. You know this verse because you get it on your Christmas card. Listen to the word of God. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. What does the Bible teach about the Messiah? The Old Testament teach about the Messiah. He will be the mighty God. Isaiah 9, 6. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I gave you the five testimonies of truth. If you're taking notes, here they are. One last time, John the Baptist. Signs and miracles. The Father, the scriptures, Moses, I mean, what more could Jesus say to these guys? And all five of those witnesses verified the Lord's amazing claims. And so what I wanna do is I wanna close with this question from Jesus Christ to you. Here it is. Who do you say I am? <laughs> 